When I became a Christian in the early 80s, was it the early 80s? Mid 80s. Um, saving sinners was very much in vogue. We would actually be trained by the church with a, an outline about how to go out into the shopping centre and talk to people and seek to save sinners. That seems to not be in vogue so much these days. I, I think some churches still do it, but we're a bit loath to talk about sin. We prefer to be far more affirming. I mean, people have enough of a challenge these days to worry about carrying the burden of the judgment of God after all. But there's a trick in this because if we don't know that we need mercy, we don't really know how to accept mercy and we run the risk of missing out on mercy. Paul is deeply aware of his need for mercy. Mercy and justice are really interesting ideas. Justice is about carefully weighing competing claims such that there might be a balanced outcome. And that's why the symbol of justice is uh, a woman blindfolded, so not looking on who's coming to her, and holding scales. Have you seen that? So weighing things up, but without fear or favour, no influence according to who's coming for those things to be weighed up. It's dis a disinterested weighing, if you like. Justice delivers to you what you deserve on your merits. That's justice, right? Mercy, on the other hand, is having delivered to you that which you do not deserve. I mean, what do we deserve anyway? And according to who? Those who champion rights always have limits around how far those rights should extend. In our complex and increasingly crazy world, what do we deserve? What do we have the right to expect and from whom? And is there any way of knowing? It all gets a bit uncertain. Mercy is about getting what we do not deserve. In a kind of a way, mercy could be seen as subversive to justice, yet it does not do away with justice. It still acknowledges what is just and then deliberately goes beyond it. So mercy doesn't undermine justice, it just goes further. Paul says, yet I was shown mercy. St Paul has no language of justice and rights as he talks about his relationship with God. He knows he, that any standing he has before God is at the discretion of God and God alone. He makes no claim. This is God's mercy toward him. And in a funny kind of way in our life and so forth, I think we're a bit set up. Um, the workings of this world set us up to expect God to be harsh and judgmental because our world is frequently harsh and unforgiving. And sometimes it seems like everyone is out to get us. And why not God too? And all the more so, because God knows how we work and everything like that. But that's not the picture we get from the stories in Scripture. Even the seemingly harsh things that happen in Scripture, like the saying, an eye for an eye, you know, if someone takes out your eye, you can take out their eye, are actually expressions of restraint and mercy in the context from which they arose. 
The God we discover in Scripture is always more merciful and less violent than the assumptions of the time in which the stories we hear about are taking place. I've said in this place before, the idea of Abraham sacrificing his son. And you read that story and go, what a terrible God that would insist on a man sacrificing his son. And you'd have to say, yeah, that's terrible. But what we'd forget is, or what we need to realise, is that Abraham was the leader of the tribe and he could have sacrificed anybody's child, a vulnerable widow, a, a woman and a family that would have no one to advocate for them. That was, that was his right. But he doesn't do that. He chooses his own son because he hear God say, if you're going to sacrifice a child, sacrifice your own son. And then when he goes to do the sacrifice, he's held back from that and he doesn't sacrifice his son. And we think, well, that was good, wasn't it? But you've got to understand his whole community were expecting him to sacrifice a child. They needed him to do that. They were under immense duress and the only way out was to appease the gods and the way you did that was to sacrifice a child and if you couldn't do that, you were not worthy to be the leader of the tribe. You see, context makes it much more nuanced. Abraham was actually taking an immense risk to say, you know what, let's not do child sacrifice anymore. That's good, right? And then you hear the prophets who railed against the mechanical workings of the whole temple system. Why do you bring these rivers of blood and oil and stuff like that? God doesn't need your sacrifices, they say again and again. And yet... This was the only mechanism the community had to hold itself together. This was very subversive stuff to have the prophets standing up and saying this. They genuinely believed God required these things. And yet the historical data would indicate to us that it's more accurate to say the people needed these things. And it helped them cope with a God who was slowly revealing to them the violence of their own hearts. And they were displacing that into sacrificial mechanisms. So people will blame God for all manner of things. And if you look carefully, you will see the revelation of God is always the holding back of retributive instincts of the people. The rich mercy shown in Christ to us is not a break from the biblical tradition. It is the fulfillment of the biblical tradition. Now, Paul says that he was ignorant in his unbelief. He was, of course, a Pharisee, a man steeped in the traditions of his day and a very faithful one at that. He was a man of utterly sincere belief, both as a follower of Christ after his conversion, but even before that as a very sincere Pharisee. For Saul the Pharisee, that was his name before he got converted, he changed his name probably to cover his past a little bit. His only concern as a Pharisee was faithfulness to the orthodoxy that was handed down to him and by extension the holiness of God. He wanted to be faithful to the holiness of God. Saul sought to honour God by enforcing the rules of the system that he had inherited. He assumed that everything he had been taught was true. And so he pushed that truth as far as it could possibly go. After I decided to follow Jesus back in the 80s, that's a fair while ago now, isn't it? 
I soaked up every bit of Christian teaching those who were leaders in my youth group and in my church had to offer. I knew I had so much to learn and I was highly motivated to learn it. My new discovery of Christ had caused me to reevaluate everything in my life. Everything I thought was pre- I previously had assumed to be true and certain and all that was all up for grabs once more and I really trusted my teachers. They told me a story that had captivated me and I wanted to be just like them. And in a funny kind of way, their teaching functioned like a new law for me. My lack of confidence in my own capacity to evaluate things meant that I trusted whatever they offered me almost without question. And there's something akin to this going on for Saul, the Pharisee, when he's fervently believing what he's been handed and prosecuting his case as he goes out to uh, persecute the church because they were disregarding the ways of Pharisaism and the Jewish tradition. But on his way to do that, of course, Saul or Paul has this incredible conversion experience. He encounters a bright light and he falls down and he discovers that he's being encountered by the risen Lord Christ. And all his missionary zeal that sent him out to persecute the church is kind of turned on its head. This, uh, the brief interchange, you can read it in Acts chapter 9 if you're reading the New Testament. It reveals that Jesus' presence made it clear to Paul that the pursuit of the forms of righteousness that he was pursuing so zealously had resulted in the persecution of the body of Christ. He thought he was serving God and it turned out he was attacking God. That's got to make you question the value of your theological education, right? Everything he believed was leading him in one direction and then he discovers that was the wrong direction. And I confess to a similar kind of discovery, journey of discovery in my own life because as I've gone on in my faith journey, it's been a journey of discovering that Christ has become more and more central to me But at the same time, many of the doctrines that I picked up when I was first taught about the Christian faith have started to fall in behind Christ rather than be around or in front of Christ, if you know what I mean. Uh, Rather than uh, obscuring the Christ I've started to see, I'm brushing away those doctrines and looking squarely at Jesus because he seems to be very central. And ironically, it's the doctrines that do not hold up under more complete scrutiny in today's world. People will question all sorts of doctrines of faith and there's all sorts of ambiguities and paradoxes in them and people uh, say, oh, that's a really weird idea, whereas the person of Christ really holds up under scrutiny. Most of the people in the community, if you ask them about Jesus... They haven't got a bad word to say. They might not believe that he was a real character, but if there was a real character like Jesus, it's hard to pick him apart. He was a really good bloke. He did really good things. And it's our doctrines that often get in the way. So after his Damascus Road experience, uh, Saul, he was initially helped by some believers and then he disappears off into the wilderness for a number of years. We don't know much about that period of time, but it seems clear that he was re-evaluating everything under the new light that he had been given. 
he had to reread and reinterpret the old stories that he had been handed. All those stories from the Hebrew Bible, the stories of creation, the stories of uh, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Moses and etc., etc. He began to see how they pointed to Christ all along even though the dominant way of understanding those stories had completely missed that. And he talks about the perfect patience of God that held this whole journey for him. And it, uh, it's really interesting to think about the perfect patience of God. Uh, it's a phrase that seems to suggest the all-encompassing long-suffering of God who holds all the struggles of understanding of everything in the palm of his hand and waits for us to kind of discern the right way forward. And it made me think of uh, an idea that I've read in a book by James Cars called Finite and Infinite Games. Anyone familiar with the ideas of finite? Yeah, some people are. Um, Cars summarises his, his ideas in this way. He says, there are at least two kinds of games, finite and infinite. There might be others, but there's at least two. A finite game is played for the purpose of winning. An infinite game is played for the purpose of continuing the play. So, you know, lots of games we play, they'll take 10 minutes or half an hour or an hour or two hours or whatever, but at the end, somebody wins and other people lose. There are other games you play that don't end. Like, have you heard of Minecraft? It's an online sort of thing. You build stuff. And you can actually do it with other people in other places online and you can build your house and they can build their house and you can chop down trees and plant stuff and it's just a game that goes on and on and on and on and on. It never ends and you just keep playing and the idea is to keep playing because it's fun and that's a different kind of game. Finite games are those uh, instrumental activities from sports to politics to war in which participants obey rules, recognise boundaries and announce winners and losers. Whereas infinite games, and there really is only one, uh, it includes any authentic interaction from touching to culture that changes rules, plays with boundaries, and exists solely for the purpose of continuing the game. A finite player seeks power, an infinite one player uh, displays self-sufficient strength. So finite players want to display their power, whereas an infinite one displays self-sufficient strength. Finite games are theatrical, necessitating an audience. So really you want to win so that people can see that you're the winner. Infinite, one, infinite games are dramatic and they involve participants. There's no, you, there's no audience as such. You're just doing it because it's fun and you want to be with the other people who are doing it. Of course, the truest infinite game is eternity. You cannot have winners and losers in eternity, only participants. Those who choose, and the other option is those who choose not to participate, but there wouldn't be their access, I suppose. So Paul's story, if we put it in these terms, Paul realised he was playing a finite game of quasi-righteousness as a Pharisee. He had constructed these or had been given these arbitrary rules about diet and ritual and social practices and so forth in which there would be winners and losers, those who could be acceptable and those who would not be acceptable. 
And yet after meeting Jesus, Paul understands that finite gameplay, this quasi-righteousness, has kept him from participating in the infinite game, true righteousness. He counts all the trappings of this finite game as loss. He says it in Philippians chapter 3. He says his status as an Israelite, the fact that he had identity from the tribe of Benjamin, these are all things of honour. His excellence as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, blameless before the law, a persecutor of the church. These were his badges of honour in the finite game. But in the infinite game... He says, these things are all now lost to me. I count them as rubbish. They actually get in the way of seeing the surpassing value of knowing Christ. It's funny to think about eternity as a bit of a game. I'm not sure if that's helpful or not. But God does not need winners and losers. Neither does God have any need to be affirmed as a winner. God just isn't that insecure. In the economy of the kingdom, winning for God is having the most people possible gladly and freely participating in the kingdom. Let's get as many people involved as possible. In contrast to the current dominating themes, God's winning means the broadest possible inclusion of the complete range of diversity. Everybody is welcomed. That's God's idea of winning. Now, in a delightful kind of way, I got a taste of that, see what I did there, last Sunday at the Bake Off. Taste, Bake Off. It's a subtle, I know. But the joy I experienced in seeing so many of our neighbours and friends and people who I eat breakfast with at the cafe on a Saturday, and those who I pass at the pub and so forth like that, gladly joining in and having fun and eating and chatting together, it was really incredible. Now, there is content to the gospel, don't get me wrong. We have an amazing, animating story at the core of all that we are and all that we do, but the gospel is not simply a story. It is a life. It is a network of relationships. It is a welcoming community of hospitality. It is the living body of the living Christ. And we have the privilege and the pleasure to live into that reality, the reality of the abundant grace of Christ. We are the welcomed of God and we are the welcome of God. Not because we have to, but because that is the organic response to the grace that we ourselves have received. The grace of our Lord is more abundant than anything. So let's follow Paul's example as he understands all of his activities. If they don't take him closer to Jesus, they take him away. And if they exclude people, they're probably not good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing grace. You're not put off by the games that we play or the things we do to make ourselves feel better, but your incredible patience wins us over as you show us your grace and draw us into your love. And may we be agents of that to the glory of your name. Amen.